You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here is your host, Ezra Beyer. Well, hey, welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast. Dave, we just had a fantastic conversation with Dr. Sandra Richter. Man, what a great chat. Yeah, I appreciate her work in in decluttering so much of the the unsorted maybe baggage people have when they try to read through the the Old Testament. I just I appreciate her commitment to the whole biblical text and also her commitment to to helping people like normal people like us understand it. I, I'm just, I was so encouraged by her, by her conversation. Several weeks ago, we had Matthew Lynch on and talked about flood and fury and understanding really the, the, the hard passages in the Old Testament. In this conversation, what I wanted um, Sandy, as she likes to be called, uh, her to discuss was how do you, um, how do you put the, the pieces of the Old Testament together? And as she shares here in a few minutes. One of the things that happens, Dave, is that, you know, and I've been guilty of this. I'll go speak on a passage from the Old Testament, and I'll just talk about it and not really put it in context of what God's doing all throughout Scripture, His plan of redemption and and all that kind of stuff. And I won't. And uh, a lot of times I would say Christians read the Old Testament kind of like that, right? And they have their fun little stories that they love to share about and the ones that they kind of skim over and don't want to read too much to their kids. And it's yeah. kind of this messy, as she described, a messy closet full of clothes. And you you sometimes just don't know what to do with it all. But she brings some order, I guess, to it. Yep. Her, her ability to sort and to help others, that's the other thing, to help other people sort through some of that by giving them bins or ways to sort of see the the meta narrative the big picture of what god's doing i just i mean it is she has a teaching gift and i know that you're you're going to love this conversation dr sandra richter is robert h gundry chair of biblical studies at westmont college and a member of the committee for biblical translation for the niv and her scholarly publications include an array of technical studies of the history society and economy of the Hebrew Bible, but she's uh, best known, I guess, for her work, The Epic of Eden. Great book, and I'd encourage you to read it. And especially, man, if you've been going through questions on the Old Testament, and just Janan and I were talking about this the other night, and she was saying, I need a book to kind of walk me through some of the stuff in the Old Testament. And I was like, man, Sandra's book is excellent. This is the one. Yeah, and it's, it's not really set up as a devotional book format, but you can really go through it chunk by chunk. And it really just adds some color, adds some structure to your reading as you go. So if you're one of those people that you have a Bible reading plan and you're kind of going through the Old Testament and struggling, uh, man, this is a great, um, great addition to your reading that you can do. But let's go ahead and get into this interview that we just had with Dr. Sandra Richter. Well, it's good to have Dr. Sandra Richter on the podcast today. Sandy, as you said to call you, uh, it's great to have you. Thank you. It is great to be here and really an honor to get to contribute to the good work that you guys are doing. Well, I, I love, so you you have been in the academic spaces for a lot of, a long while, mm-hmm. but one of the things I love about your work and our, as our audience, if they're unfamiliar with your work, they'll soon discover is that I love how you break it down for everyday Christians. And mm-hmm. that's just, sometimes that's a I don't know if you found that a hard, um, <laughs> a difficult thing to do at times, but uh, I just appreciate the way that you do that. So thank you mm-hmm. for that upfront. 
Well, you are welcome. And I, I don't actually, I don't find it hard. I find it incredibly satisfying. Um, because mm -hmm. of course we, we sit up here in our little academic ivory towers and talk to all three people who understand what we do. Um, <laughs> if we're not getting this material into the hands of the laity, what are we doing? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do a, a deep dive into, or at least a, a semi deep dive into mm -hmm. your work in the Old Testament. And those that are mm -hmm. familiar with your work will know how you've written the Epic of Eden and so forth on, on this topic. Um, but before we go there, I mean, how did you first come to faith in Christ? What did your <laughs> early journey look like? You would think that would be such a simple question, wouldn't you? It never and, is. It never is. <laughs> yeah, and, and and you might need to, you know, cut me off somewhere in here. But uh, I was I was raised a God-fearer. I was raised in the Catholic Church, and my um, family were real Catholics. Like, we did CCD and Catholic school and all that sort of thing. But in the parishes that I was associated with, I never once heard the gospel. So... 15 years of being a captive audience and no one ever explained to me that Jesus actually wanted to know me. And I wandered across the street one day, literally wandered across the street. And this was the tail end of the Jesus movement in the Washington suburbs. And there was a youth group that was meeting in the basement of an Episcopal church across the street from my house. I literally wandered in and they all jumped on me with this fabulous Jesus love. And I heard the gospel for the first time from a 17 year old. Uh, everything in me said, yes, that has got to be true. And I hung out with them for two or three years until they convinced me to say yes. And I said, yes, and I've never gotten over it. So that's, that's, that's what I came to faith. That's fascinating. Now. Those are an audience, if they may be familiar with the Jesus movement, it's kind mm. of become a little bit popular with the, you know, film and all that recently. Um, when you describe the Jesus movement to other people, how, how do you do that? Because it, it, yeah. it feels, I moved out to Boise. Well, my uh -huh. wife and I lived in Toronto, Canada, lived more on the East Coast in the United States. I honestly wasn't, I had heard of the Jesus movement, but mm -hmm. it wasn't really in my thought process. And then moving out here, it's a lot more prevalent in like oh, people okay. that I've, at least from what I've understood. So how would you describe that, I guess? Well, looking at your face, my first response would be, you're not old enough to know about the Jesus <laughs> movement. That would be part of the problem. Um, so I, when I describe it to my undergraduate students who can't imagine life without the internet, right? So we need to start there. Um, I tell them that it's kind of like a, a Jesus Woodstock without the drug. And That's while really they're processing, <laughs> while they're processing, I try to pull in some more data. Yeah. Um, honestly, from the perspective of someone who studies church history, it, it was this sovereign revivalist movement that swept through the United States in the sixties and seventies. Um, it, I would describe it to the Great Awakening. I mean, I would compare it, although I think it 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 had a, a much narrower impact, but a very similar uh, moment when there was a generation that was desperately seeking mm. real in the middle of religion, and in that seeking, the Holy Spirit answered. So the Jesus movement was very charismatic. 
So that would be something that makes it distinctive from the Great Awakening. But in my experience and from what I know of it, it touched every single denomination out there. So that youth group in the basement of St. James Episcopal Church, we were uh, liberal Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Episcopal, Methodist, Baptist, uh, and a whole lot of never even thought about it. It's as, mm. as well. And one of uh, one aspect of my heritage as a believer is almost every person in that gathering went into ministry, and um, and and has just done great things for the kingdom in a bajillion different places. Well, I know Dave's got questions here, but one mm -hmm. to tack onto that real quickly is, is Asbury. I know you've had connections there mm -hmm. in the past and yeah. the Asbury, recent Asbury revival. I mean, when yeah. you, you saw that, I don't know if you had a chance to experience it in person. Uh, I didn't. Um, Dave and I have had a lot of friends that were a part of that. Um, did that bring up memories from the past? How would you see that as a, maybe a little bit different than what you experienced even? Yeah. Uh, Memories or just uh, touched some of my my deeper commitments mm. with one of my deeper commitments and something that has proven itself to me over the years that I've been in ministry and in the academy is that mission drift is a given and it's a given in everything from mm. Silicon Valley to um, the Southern Baptist Church to, you know, uh, the Mission Society. Um, in the church's story, if each generation is not interrupted by a revival, that denomination, that church, that camp, that Christian liberal arts institution, that seminary is going to start drifting. And it's that cycle of revival that keeps the church alive. So I look at something like what happened at Asbury and I say, yes, we've got, you know, we, we've, we've got one more spin of the wheel here and it makes me grateful. And another thing, uh, we were talking about this before we uh, went on camera or whatever it is we're on. Um, and uh, I taught at Asbury for years and years. So, so many of the staff who are now at the college were my students at some point in time. Wow, interesting. And yeah, and I'm so gratified to see the way they handled it. Uh, they they told yeah. Fox News to go away. They yeah, told yeah. the old holiness preachers who saw the wave rising and wanted to get their board on top of the curl. Um, they said, go away. Uh, the administrators and the student development workers, they stayed in the back room and they sent the students out front. And I love that. Yeah. And the impact it seems to have had, and I know will continue uh, into the lives of those students, is real, as far as I can tell. Wow. And fascinating. Real, real is good. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, fascinating stuff. Um, Dave, I'm going to kick it over to you. I guess one of the thoughts, well, quick thoughts, by the way, some in our audience that have listened to the podcast for a little bit, Dave, they know mm -hmm. that you always say First Testament instead of the Old Testament. <laughs> so you need to explain that for uh, for people that, uh, you know, wh why you use the language and, and kind of, uh, yeah, I'm curious. I, so uh, Andy Hill, guy from Wheaton in class about three years ago, said to me, I worked with said, him. Oh, are you serious? He's such a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's such a good dude. Oh, yeah, man. He is. 
he he like humble unassuming guy but he he said i mean to us a bunch of musicians and like uh, in our first class at iws uh where i'm going to school he said that it's this is not old this is this is teaching us about the character of god i would never want somebody to think that this is antiquated and so i know it, it sounds a little it sounds a little snobby to say first testament <laughs> but i just I have a hard time now with andy in my mind thinking of yeah. this this old thing and yet to transition to some of your work it there's some tough stuff in there and yeah. for the for the folks that just want to get on the certainty wagon real quick there there are challenges to interpreting and understanding the first testament that mm. i think uh, i really i just to Ez's point, you, the clarity in your writing and um, like the some of the meta narrative things that you help people understand, it's just very helpful. So I'm going to wind up with that uh, compliment and ask you a question. Hmm. What is you start out? You started off in the book talking about dysfunctional closet syndrome. Can you tell <laughs> us about dysfunctional closet syndrome and maybe how that relates to the old or first testament? Yeah, and I'm I'm now pondering if I need to start calling it the First Testament. You know, no, you sound so much more relatable. I sound like somebody that's not, like <laughs> trying to sound smart, and I'm really I'm a trumpet player. Okay, so just full <laughs> disclosure. Okay, hey, it's I'm a really hard to play the trumpet. I'm just uh, saying. Yeah, uh, it, it, I think what you're doing is much more difficult. But thank you. So, uh, what is dysfunctional <laughs> closet syndrome? Okay, you know, one of the questions that uh, y'all had, had forwarded to me was you know, how I thought up that metaphor. And I've, I've been casting about trying to remember when I thought up that metaphor. Because here's the, the second chapter of my story, right? I get saved in this little Jesus movement group. None of us know anything about the organized church. It, let me rephrase that. Anything we do know about the organized church is negative. Yeah, we don't, uh -huh. we don't know that there are people out there actually changing the world for Jesus and building the kingdom. Um, so I, uh, I wound up in ministry for a while with the Assemblies of God, and I was a youth pastor, right? Do a lot of youth pastoring, and I was trying to make this material understandable to first youth groups, then I worked in Teen Challenge, if you recognize that, that name, it's a drug rehab program, and uh, then I, you know, I wound up in a bajillion church settings, so what I was working with constantly was how to make this material accessible to the common man, you know, not to the PhD student or someone who I get to give an exam afterwards so they're forced to learn it. And I honestly don't remember the first time I stumbled across that concept over those words. But the way it works is um, all of us somewhere in our lives have got a really messed up closet. And um, that messed up closet means that we've got a lifetime of acquisitions shoved behind that closet door. I'll often compare it to Monica's closet these days. Um, and all that stuff is in there, but we can't find anything, we can't use anything. And I think most everybody can relate to that closet. And maybe it's the tool shed, or maybe it's the toy chest, or maybe it's the junk drawer in the kitchen. 
But the news is it's actually easier to drive to the hardware store to buy a new one, whatever it is you're looking for, than to find the thing in that messed up, overcrowded, discombobulated closet. So that became my metaphor for how most people's knowledge of the Old Testament works. They've been jamming stuff into that closet their whole Christian lives. They have got dozens of names and dates and events. They have no idea how they go together. And actually finding what they're looking for, well, it's easier to drive down to the hardware store and buy a new one. And it's, and it's not just lay people, guys. It's your pastors as well. And so then I, I go on, and as you've read the book, I tell the unflattering story of my first couple of years in college where I was the consummate slob. And by the way, I have two children, and one of them inherited the consummate. <laughs> and I am waiting for the uh, conversion and revival. And it has. <laughs> okay. So my room in college was such a disaster that after nagging me, fining me, penalizing me, my RAs finally took Polaroid snapshots of my room and posted them on a public bulletin board in an effort to shame me into cleaning my room. A valiant <laughs> but ineffective attempt. So that room became a, a metaphor for me because there was also a dress code at my little college and there was an early morning chapel. And so I would be expected to be in chapel in dress code with my teeth brushed at like 7.45 in the morning, which never was gonna happen. So the end result was I would either wind up being late for chapel because I was sorting through the mess in my room to find stuff that went together or I would wear what was on the top of the pile, which made me look less than fresh on more than one morning. Uh, that's, that's how I think about most people in their Old Testament and most preachers in their Old Testament. There's so much of a mess in there that it either takes them way too much time to find what they're looking for, so they give up and they stick with the New Testament, or they yeah. only wear what's on top of the pile. So you hear the same four Old Testament sermons over and over and over again. I bet, okay, so full disclosure here, my wife, she does closet makeovers for clients. <laughs> and when she first started describing this to me, I just didn't get it. And she said, mm -hmm. no, she said like, you know, she works primarily with women. So um, she said, no, uh, women, especially in their thirties and things like this, she'll, they'll end up, maybe they'll, someone will tell them black, you know, is slimming. And so they'll only have black clothes and they won't mm. get clothes that match their skin tone and, and all, all these things. Right. Oh, wow. And, and so, and so her point was, it's, it was actually really fascinating for me to watch and she'll do, you know, YouTube videos on it and stuff where she'll go and she'll go to like a client's place and then they'll kind of clear out a lot of times half or even sometimes three quarters of their closet wow. because it's stuff wow. they just don't use. Right. But it's, mm -hmm. It's there. And so I think that that um, metaphor is actually super relatable to people. And it's actually more been more relatable to me recently. Um, I want to pull up. Yeah, this graphic. I, I, I wish I had your wife's skills. My closet still are, are not nearly as organized my, as my Old Testament. But I think the interaction there would be I don't wind up typically throwing away that much stuff. Mm. But what I do wind up doing, and I'm sure your wife can relate to this, is I've got to pull it all out. I got to yeah. pull it out and then we spread it out on the floor and then I start organizing it and uh, hang it all back up and what I say to my students 
And, and honestly, I have taught students as young as preschoolers this material. Um, good structure is good pedagogy. Once mm. people actually know what the big chunks of their Old Testament are, they can use it. And, and then, of course, they fall in love with it because they actually can use it. But let's, um, Dave, let's link to this in the, in the show notes below. Um, Sandra, or Sandy did a, mm-hmm. a seven-minute seedbed video on like an overview of the Old Testament. I think that'd be helpful for those in our audience to, to watch that. But let me just throw up the graphic for those of you that are watching. You can't see it real, real clearly there, but you basically start off in Eden. And mm-hmm. if you could give us maybe a three and a half minute overview of, of how okay. that closet comes together for you, the, mm-hmm. the big chunks of the Old Testament, how, if someone's listening to this and they kind of just think, oh, I stick with the new and that's about it. Yeah. How, how do you organize it, it for them? Yeah. Cause it's so hard. And that that would be my introduction, the premise that uh, there are just too many names, too many dates, too many places, and they all sound the same, right? I mean, what in the world is the difference between Jehoiakim and Jehoiakin? Help me out. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it does. It gets to be a big jumbled mess. So what do I do? Um, I have um, several basic strategies. Uh, one of them is a, a main one is getting them past the Great Barrier. Because, as David's already referred to, there's a huge gap between us and them. And in our love for the Old Testament, too often we pretend there isn't a gap. And there's a huge one, cultural, historical, geographical. So I work really hard to get my students back into the real shoes of the real people who lived in the Old Testament. And I find in my classes that whether or not a student is super liberal, ah, this is all make-believe, or super conservative, um, we live and die by Elijah's diet, you know, that either one, they both have the same problem. And the problem is that the characters in the Bible aren't real people. They're either uh, fictional mythological folk or their ivory tower, they never felt the feelings or lived the life I lived. So that wow. a big thesis for me. Yeah. Um, and so I'll, I'll recite over and over again, uh, these are real people who lived in real places and struggled with real faith. And until you recognize them as real people, their struggles don't touch your struggles. You know, they're, they're, they're all the way out there. They, they, they don't know what it feels like to be desperate and anxious and afraid and hungry. And I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. So that's a big thesis. But the organization, um, what do I do? Uh, I think that it's my job as the expert to actually provide the scaffolding. And I think one of the great weaknesses of both church education and academic education is we focus on the minutia instead of on the meta narrative. And people need a paradigm. So I work with the meta narrative. And I start off by explaining to them that there are two big bookends uh, on the biblical text, not just the Old Testament, the biblical text. First bookend is Eden. The final bookend is the New Jerusalem. And big surprise, they're the same place and the same plan. Uh, Mm. Adam and Eve getting thrown out of the garden was the heartbreak of God's great plan. So his solution is to get Adam and Eve back in the garden. Mm. And when People get those bookends uh, in the book I call God's original and final intent. They're like, whoa. So this whole Jesus thing, this whole salvation thing, I'm like, bingo. It's all about getting Adam back in the garden. 
This is why Jesus is called the second Adam. Oh. Um, <laughs> this is why, you know, the solution to not just our personal problems, but to the cosmos problem is the New Jerusalem. So first I get the bookends in place. And when I do that, people are like, oh, so they died when they step out of Eden, which means physiologically they began to die and their, their immaterial self, their soul actually died which is why in Jesus we're born again. Oh my gosh, this information goes together. So that's the first thing. And honestly, if I only had an hour with uh, most of the planet, that's the lesson I would teach. Let me show you how Eden and the New Jerusalem are the same place. So after I get that down, then I demonstrate to them that the concept of covenant moves all the way through their Bible. And whereas lots of people try to impose a structure on the Bible to make it make sense, like, I don't know, the prayer of Jabez, maybe, <laughs> um, <laughs> or um, a little closer to target, the Roman road, um, these are actually false organizing principles, meaning mm. they're not indigenous to the text itself. Whereas the text, is organized around covenant. We have an old covenant and a new covenant. We just happen to call it the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then embedded in there is actually six different covenantal relationships that God forges with humanity. And each one of them moves the story forward from the great collapse at the fall. And step by step by step, we are bringing God's people back into God's place and giving them back access to the presence, which was lost with the fall. So that that would be, that's the infrastructure. And then I start filling in the categories. Okay, so for the person listening to this, they might be familiar. I'm a, one name that comes to mind is like Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath. So as an example mm -hmm. here, um, the thesis I would say of that book generally is, you know, he goes into saying, well, Goliath actually probably had, uh, I forget the name of the, the disease, but with his eyes so he couldn't see. And so actually David had the advantage and that's kind of the, that's the, the underlying theme. Anti-supernatural maybe. Is that fair? Well, yeah. It, well, it's, it's kind of saying, you know, and, and so confront your giants because they're actually not as bigger as they are. Now taking that to a pastoral level, it seems like a lot of times people, I'll, I'll, you know, you'll hear sermons kind of like that, you know, confront your giants. That's what, that, you know, yeah. and then you get the walls of Jericho and things like that. Do you know uh, that sermon? Yeah. I've, I've told my seminarians, if I ever hear you preach that sermon, I'm going to stand up, walk up to the lectern and slap you. Yeah. It's over. <laughs> well, so explain, explain why. Someone's listening to this and they're saying, oh, what's wrong with Why that? is she yes. going to slap her students? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, we are not I, David in this story. Okay. Because uh, I, I, I really love them. Um, so the classic sermon is Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Do you have walls in your life? Jesus can bring them down. That's the sermon. If you haven't heard it yet, you will, I'm sure. Um, the other one that I love to yell about is Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. Do you have storms in your life? Jesus can calm them. Um, those types of um, uh, oh gosh, a reductionistic approach yeah. to not only the great story of which we are a part, but of the character of God and to the human characters that are in the mix. 
we said that Joshua wasn't scared to death. Well, then we're not, we're not paying attention. Um, the disciples are career fishermen and they think they're gonna die. What kind of storm was that? And who has ever spoken to the waves and the wind and said, be still? And there's only one person who's ever done that and his name mm -hmm. is God. So this is not a, do you have storms in your life? Jesus can still them sermon. This is, I am. <laughs> I am. <laughs> so but, here but, is. Yeah. But how does your closet, how does that, how does that make it? Oh, like whenever okay. you read these stories, yeah. how do you say, yeah. okay, no, this is where that actually fits. And, and basically in this process, kind of teaching, hopefully those in our audience to do the same thing with yeah. whatever stories they come across. Okay. So now that I am hanging out with uh, 18 through 22 year olds at Westmont College, uh, my, my um, metaphors, my teaching illustrations have had to shift. Do you know that they don't watch Star Trek anymore? Ever. <laughs> yeah. They don't know who Henry Kissinger is, and they barely know who Billy Graham is. And yeah. if you ask them when Pearl Harbor Day was, they'll all look at you blankly. Okay. Yeah. So the new illustration, Harry Potter, right? We're, that'll that'll hang for another five or seven years. <laughs> um, so this is what I tell them. If you start reading your Bible in Matthew chapter one, you might as well pick up Harry Potter in book five. And you're going to have a lot of trouble figuring out who that kid is with the weird uh, scar on his forehead. And there's no way you're ever going to figure out if Sirius Black is a good guy or a bad guy. But if you start reading in book one, um, those characters that start populating the later books have a backstory and you uh, realize the significance of every action they take. So sometimes I'll talk about Bose surround sound. They don't know that one anymore either. Yeah, you can, you know, you can, I'm tracking. thank you. You can read just the New Testament and you can meet Jesus in Matthew chapter one. Yeah, and you can still hear the gospel and come to a point of salvation, but if you read Matthew chapter one, knowing the backstory, as soon as the gospel writer opens with, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. First of all, you're already on your knees because it's yep. the only genealogy in the entire Bible that starts with the descendant instead of the ancestor. Yep. Then you're gonna hear that he's the son of Abraham, the son of David, and your heart is gonna start pounding out of your chest. Wait a minute. The promise to Abraham, the promise to David, could this be the one? And then as you read through that genealogy, which to us is a literary form that is deeply unfortunate <laughs> as opposed to compelling and engaging. If you are a returned from the exile Jew, there's nothing more important on the planet than your genealogy because it's the only thing that ties you back to the great days of David. And as you're reading through that genealogy, you not only encounter the rise and fall of the Davidic line and this one final answer, oh my gosh, a son of David still lives and breathes, but you also will crash into five women with very questionable reputations, all of whom are outsiders. And once you learn the cultural form of Israel, you realize that women shouldn't ever be in genealogies. This is a patrilineal society. Only men are in genealogies. And yet we have Rahab, the harlot. We have Bathsheba, the adulteress. We have Ruth, the outsider. She's a Moabitess. We have Tamar, 
the daughter-in-law who seduced her father-in-law. And your audience is like, okay, I didn't know any of that was in the Bible. And what it shouts at the informed reader is not only is the ground level at the foot of the cross, this, this Messiah is coming to bring in every Gentile, every outsider, every slave, every, 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 everyone that no one would have welcomed into the inner sanctum of the temple has just been listed in the genealogy of the Christ. Stand up and pay attention. But of course, we don't even see that stuff because we're starting to read in book five instead of book one. Okay, so so the pushback I have not not mm-hmm. me. I'm tracking with you here, but mm-hmm. the common pushback I feel like I hear, and I won't, you know, I don't mean to pick on him, but I would say Andy Stanley it would be one of the <laughs> ones he talks about unhitching from the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and then uh, one that I would say to me every sermon that's given there's kind of two themes, right? There's the actual sermon, and then the underlying message. And when I've heard mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. say communicators such as him speak, and a very common theme I would say it's go to Jesus right? Go to Jesus. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament is messy, and let's disconnect from that. Um, Start with Jesus. That's when things, you really start to get things figured out. And then as you see Jesus, then you can see the Old Testament. It sounds like you're saying, you know, start with Eden, and then Mm -hmm. go from there. Am I, am I saying that incorrectly? How do you, how do you approach that conversation? Yeah. um, I think that's, I would correct that some in that I would say that most folks who become interested in the great redemptive story are interested because they've heard about Jesus and they want to know more about him. And hopefully they have met Christians that have made the character of Jesus explicit and, okay, I want to know who this guy is. I want to know who he is. I know where he, I want to know where he came from. I want to know why he's had such an immense impact historically and on this Christian who's, you know, sitting at Starbucks with me. So I I do think he is, oh, he is the door. He is the entryway. He's the gate of the sheepfold, all of those things. Um, But we can't know Jesus unless we recognize that he is the climax of the story. He is not the introduction to the story. Uh, Even going back to the Harry Potter story, Harry didn't start the story, um, but he winds up a critical character in the in in the midst. He's he's the the moment when all of the villains and the heroes and the themes and hopes and fears of generations collide. And that's exactly who Jesus is. And with every step forward in understanding who Jesus actually is, we come to know the triune God. So we come to know Father, Holy Spirit um, uh, more deeply, uh, more, and deeply sounds like such a cheap word. Um, We realize what an incredible rescue story we're a part of. That would be a part of another part of my infrastructure. I talk about the Bible as the great rescue plan and the whole story is about rescuing humanity from the choices that they've made. Um, help me answer that question better. Uh, ask me more pointed yeah. things. No, no, no that, that makes sense. It, it's, um, again, it's just, uh, sometimes it's hard to pinpoint the language, but it, oftentimes, I guess where I, I struggle with is when, yes, I 
agree with, like, you know, the in Dennis Kinlaw. I don't know if you enjoyed mm-hmm. his work, but let's start with Jesus. I mean, oh, yeah. I love that book, right? Got it mm-hmm. right there. Um, and so I, I, I like that framework of looking at Jesus and then helping him, you know, uh, and understanding scripture through the lens of Jesus. My challenge is when I would say it's, okay, here's Jesus. Now we've got a lot of problematic stuff in the Old Testament. Several weeks ago, we had Matthew Lynch on, talked about uh, was it Flood oh. and Fury, right? Mm-hmm. And so we talked more in depth about some of the troubling passages, quote unquote, mm-hmm. in the Old Testament and what to do with those, right? Mm. And and so I guess that's that's my challenge is like sometimes we just start with Jesus and then pretty much just dismiss everything that comes right. before it. And so I guess right. that's what, what I'm getting to. Okay. And um, uh, Andy Stanley's very unfortunate series, he ran it a couple of years ago, um, where he talked about unhitching the Old Testament, yeah, getting rid yeah. of it. It was, it was keeping people from coming to know Jesus. Oh, my gosh. Um, so first of all, there was someone who thought that up before. His name was Marcion. And he was a first century heretic. And as a heretic, he was uh, pushed outside the circle of Christian fellowship in the first several centuries of the church's existence. Um, Andy Stanley, he knows better. And honestly, he should be ashamed of himself and he needs to correct himself. The Mm -hmm. idea that we would dismiss two thirds of redemptive history that we would dismiss two thirds of God's self revelation to humanity because he finds it inconvenient. Oh my goodness. Um, No, uh, that is irresponsible at best. And again, needs to be corrected. So the messy stuff, I love that. Do we find the rider on the white horse in the book of Revelation Mm. who's gonna break through the clouds and cut down every man, woman, and child who has refused allegiance to his new kingdom. Do we find that messy? Yeah. Because it's New Testament. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and it's Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's, I don't, it's, yeah. Yeah, I don't find the Old Testament any messier than the New. I, what, think, I, what I find, though, is that we um, have a much more significant cultural gap with the Old Testament than we do. And part of that cultural gap, especially in the States, I don't think this isn't true in other parts of the world, but in the States, um, we have never had a foreign army march down Main Street, not once. Our military is confined to very nice, neat bases in San Diego and Norfolk and Pearl Harbor And we see our military men and women in their dress whites, their dress blues, marching on Memorial Day and the 4th of July. We don't see war in our country. Uh, Israel sees war. Israel Mm. sees a lot of war. And the warfare passages, I think, are the passages, at least in my student body, that disturb the most. And one of the things I wind up saying to them is that if you lived in the Ukraine right now, there would be no better possible news than a bigger, meaner army marching down Main Street than uh, Putin's forces from Russia. But my students really have a lot of trouble with that. Yeah. So, um, and war is a big part of Israel's story. Um, Yeah. 
I got a big one I want to tackle. It just I know we got about ten minutes left here, but uh, Dave, okay. I've been hogging the conversation. So. No, you're okay. I just I'm I'm curious. I you know you can't judge somebody's motives. It seems like some of the the unhitching language mm-hmm. in general, and I, I'm not speaking Andy Stanley specifically. Haven't read his book, but just some of the if it's it, there's almost like this desire to make Christianity Easy. somehow like and, and not a yeah, there's a pal. Like if somehow we can just thread this needle, then it won't be a stumbling block and it won't be foolishness to people. But like Christianity is pretty weird. And so like if you're going to go all in on a resurrection of someone like there's there's mm-hmm. just going to be some things. And and that being said, I I I appreciate the fact that you seem to have this relationship with students. that's like, yeah, let's talk about this, because I mm. think. There's a there's a very reductionistic way that you mentioned sort of looking at the well, God God told them to destroy them. So they destroyed them. Next question, and sort of dismiss mm. people that have difficulties. I, I'm not into that either, but I, I think they're the desire to be liked and and sort of ecumenically mushy. I, I mm-hmm. I'm just uh I think that doesn't actually help disciple anybody deeply. And without to your point, two thirds of the of God's revelation to us to just summarily dismiss that as if mm-hmm. they're not that there aren't time bound things, but that mm-hmm. there are not in every passage sort of echoes of who God is. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to dismiss this because, you know, we can't figure out a good reason for it. I, that, that just seems, um, you know, like irresponsible. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And let me, I, I actually have been thinking about this. I mean, I think about it all the time, but, um, uh, there, there was a, a point just a few weeks ago where uh, something shifted in my own brain, which is the Old Testament is all about a fallen people group encountering the Almighty, a fallen culture, a fallen sinful humanity encountering over and over again the creator of the cosmos who's trying to bring them home. Whereas the New Testament is mostly about Jesus, which is the creator of the universe encountering humanity. It's a little different. And I think that might be one of the issues with Old versus New Testament. But if we've read Paul's letters, if we've read the apocalypse, um, the people that we're dealing with are not shifting much. We're still dealing with those same issues. Um, and certainly back, you're referring to the conquest when you say God just said, destroy them, right? Yeah. yeah. There's so many conditioning factors there that don't yeah. get brought into the story. One is a discussion of just war. One is a discussion of a refugee population that is in need of a homeland. Another is an issue of land grants in um, ancient international politics. Um Another is the issue of God's return to his territory, which is what that rider on the white horse is doing too. And I think that I'm probably throwing out a lot of reference. It might be confusing your audience, but let me say it this way. I've spent my life studying this book. I'm a really nice person. <laughs> you are. Um, I, uh, I have given CPR to a struggling baby squirrel successful. <laughs> I actually have kissed a chipmunk, just to quote Veggie Tales. Um, and, and I'm a raging environmentalist. Uh, 
And I, I do not find the character of the Old Testament. I don't find the character of the God of the Old Testament troubling at all. Yeah. Yeah. One question I have is just, it's kind of, it's nagged at me at different times. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like I've never heard a very clear answer, I guess, um, Mm -hmm. explaining this. So just to pull back your your chart here, for those that are watching, uh, if you Mm -hmm. haven't, uh, you can click on the link, uh, the seedbed link that um, we'll include in the show notes below. When you look at the big picture Mm -hmm. of the Old Testament and all that's that's happening, and it feels like oftentimes when I hear sermons or I've sat in classes, we talk about what God is doing um, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, mm-hmm. and uh, very little talk, I would say, is of what's happening outside of that. So what of those people mm-hmm. where they weren't part of that, right? And then mm-hmm. we can continue that on to the early Christian church, right? Well, what about those that didn't hear about Jesus? And how did that, mm-hmm. how did the, how did that really shape, right? And I know we're, we're going to, but I think that's just a basic question that a lot of people have that I feel isn't answered very well a lot of times. So yes. h- how do you how uh-huh. do you explain that? How is God, how is the good news of the gospel really good news for everyone? It's for everyone, right. Mm-hmm. Well, as we look at the trajectory, and again, for any of your audience that's read the book Epic of Eden or who's worked with the curriculums, um, with the great fall coming out of Eden, all of humanity is... Uh, uh, broken off, uh, the relationship between them and God is broken, it's severed. And uh, this was the promised result and humanity chose the results and we have this, this massive breach. Okay, so no humanity has access to, um, to God. The rescue plan that runs from Genesis three all the way through the book of Revelation is all about uh, winning those people back. And it's all about rescuing those lost family members. And that's the metaphor that's used throughout the text, that God, our father, is sending his firstborn son to seek and save the lost and then share his inheritance with the offspring that have squandered theirs. That's the big picture. So we know that the end of the story is all about getting every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve who's willing to say yes to the rescue plan back into Eden. We know that's the end of the story. But as we jump into the story at certain junctures, uh, we could easily say, hey, God, right here um, during the Mosaic Covenant, the only people who are allowed in are Israelites, and that can't be right. They're offspring of Abraham. And then you'll massage that a little bit, and you'll be like, oh, no, no, proselytes are welcome. That means are welcome in. Um, Anyone who marries into an Israelite family becomes an Israelite and is welcome to the temple. So, you know, more than just the Israelites, but, you know, what's going on with the indigenous Americans, uh, you know, the Chumash who are living in Southern California? Um, Yeah. What's going on with them? And then, of course, you get to the New Testament, and the invitation is offered to all of humanity, but what are we going to do with an indigenous population tucked away in the Amazon that's never heard about Jesus? So we're still going to wind up with folks who haven't heard the invitation and therefore haven't had opportunity to respond with yes. So what do I do with that um, it, it, You know, at any juncture along the way? And... 
what I, I have to answer honestly, which is, I don't know that mm. you know, one, I, I, that, 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 there's no book in the yeah. Bible that explains that in detail. But what I, what do I know? Uh, I do know the character of God and I know that he's just and that he's gracious. I know that when he could have obliterated Adam and Eve, he looked in their faces and he saw our faces and he couldn't do it. And instead of obliterating them, he launched a rescue plan. I know that when Israel martyred just about every prophet he sent to them and wound up in an exile, he also didn't obliterate them. He found a way to bring them home. And when Jesus comes and tabernacles among us, a woman with an issue of blood and a leper are allowed to touch him. So what I see in the character of God is a God that never stops seeking and a God who's just in his evaluation of the human heart. There are um, one of the teachings of the early church fathers is something called the harrowing of hell. You guys, mm. I'm sure heard of it. The idea that when Jesus descends into hell, that he actually brings the gospel message with him. And to all those who have died prior to his coming, offers them the opportunity to say yes. And now your audience is thinking, well, then everybody should be in heaven. And then we read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. And we think, hmm, maybe not everybody got on the bus. And I'll let yeah. you at some other time. Would um, you generally agree, you know, tacking on to C.S. Lewis there, the mm -hmm. gates of hell kind of locked from the inside out, as, uh, so, so to speak? Is that... Would you, I like that. I like that. Yeah. And the way I've heard it said to me in the past is, you know, a lot of folks are thinking, well, you know, I'll become a Christian before I die and make sure my fire insurance is set up. But right now, mm -hmm. be married because, um, you know, I want to live life to the fullest. And the response to that is, if you're not willing to choose Jesus now, what makes you think you'd be willing to choose him at the end of your life? Or going back to your statement, um, even looking at the resurrected Christ, would everyone choose him? Mm. And then yeah. we circle back to the Garden of Eden and we think about a God who walks in the garden and still Adam and Eve chose autonomy over submission. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So all that to say, I my answer to everyone on that question is I hold that question with open hands, with confidence in the character of God, but I do not have any sort of slam dunk response. What do, yeah. Ezra, what do you say in response to that one? I, I kind of go to first John, I guess, walking all the light that you have. And so I, I would say, man, so this is how God has revealed himself to me and as I would understand him and how mm. this makes sense of the world, right? That That's how, um, but, Leaving with, leaving, uh, not going to great lengths, I guess, to try to explain things maybe I was never meant to explain. Mm -hmm. um, and I think of that in the context of raising kids. I mean, I thought of this especially when we lived in Toronto, Canada, right? And Jeanette, my wife, and I were just talking about this the other day, you know, a lot of Muslim neighbors and things like mm -hmm. that. And just thinking, mm -hmm. ah, I mean, like, you know, it's easy to just kind of hold these views, right, in, in silos in a nice Christian church community. But when it actually, you know, the impact people you love and you care about, then you mm -hmm. really think through them at a different level. And so I guess I, I love your statement about trusting in the character of God. Mm -hmm. I think early on, 
at least in my Christian journey, it was so much about uh, proof text, so much mm. about getting in, and some of that stuff is good, but I found more and more, it's like, as I read the Bible, I really want to understand God's nature and his nature mm-hmm. helps uh, inform the way I interpret different passages mm-hmm. of scripture. Um, so mm-hmm. something that, yeah. that blew my mind, Sandy, I, we were, I was reading Daniel Block. Uh, I can't remember the, uh, for the glory of God. And he just had mm-hmm. this, and people conceive of the, there's this new Testament God and there's this Old Testament yeah. God, and he he made the case from Exodus 34. We were talking about earlier the Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious. Like mm-hmm. that is his self-disclosed mm-hmm. revelation. That is his narrative through both testaments. And when you see when you see that, you're okay with leaving some questions like that on the line. In our context, as a little bit, you know, I think Wesley wrestled. John Wesley wrestled some mm-hmm. with this with like uh, Muslims and what's what's going to happen with folks that haven't mm-hmm. heard. And I think it's good that we wrestle with those questions. But at the end of the day, like we we do have to come back to what we know. And I, I think your answer is spot on. It's just like we know mm-hmm. God is like this. We know he's going to deal justly and fairly and that he is he is love. And I, I just yeah, I rest in that because I don't have a great sound bite either. <laughs> and, and I hope that our wrestling drives us to mm. get out there and tell our neighbors about it. Mm. Ooh. In, in seminary in particular, I would get this question all the time, and it was often a student who just kind of was mad at their faith upbringing. And one of the things sometimes I would wind up saying is, um, uh, you know, I would I would go through the response that, that we, all three of us have uh, here, and then I'd say, but here's the deal, dude, you have heard. <laughs> mm. And because yeah. really what they were looking for yes. was, they were looking for an escape hatch for themselves. Oh. They mm-hmm. were not, they were not concerned necessarily about the lost and they didn't want to be told, okay, so which missions organization are you joining? Um, mm. Hey, and I wanted to read you this little quote. I gave my final exam today. So again, we're dealing with undergrads at Westmont here and I got this little thank you note and um, uh, let's see if I can find it. Uh the um oh shoot 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 we learned so much in your class now instead of thinking of the god of the old testament as an angry and removed god i will think of a loving god who provides for his people the and she put it in quotes the ot god is far more similar to the god we see in the new testament and i wouldn't have known that if it wasn't for your class Hmm. and what that means of course is she's unlike andy stanley would recommend you know, she's actually spent time in those difficult texts and as a result has seen the God who rescued and rescued and rescued again and forgave and forgave and forgave again. Yeah. yeah. Powerful. Let's leave it there. We'll have to do part two sometime, but Sandy, okay. thank you so much for coming thank on. You, and again, we'll link to everything in the show notes below, but uh, we appreciate you joining us and thank you again for, for your work and your contributions. Oh, yeah. So we appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me on. I hope there's stuff in there that will serve your, your audience. So I'm confident it will. So have a great day. Thanks. You too. Take care. Great conversation, man. I love one of the things I love about Sandy is her balance, right? Sometimes you get, we've talked about how many times, Dave, you know, get academics and they love to talk 
about academic stuff and it's so hard to bring it down to, you know, the level of people like you and I, right. And yeah. she just does such a great job of that. And so I love that it's accessible. Yeah. She, she seems to have a passion. I think also, as I would say, that's a mark of a true scholar, the ability to speak clearly and simply to uh, different audiences about the material that you've spent a lot of time becoming a subject matter expert in. And I just, I don't know, man, so many times in her, even just sharing her journey and accidentally walking into a sort of a Jesus, a Jesus uh, movement pe uh, meeting in basement of an Episcopal church, just thinking about the faithfulness of God to people. I, I don't know. I was moved to tears so many times as she was sharing her own journey and just narrating for us, what the big picture plan is of God in history. Um, I, I just, this is probably one of my favorite interviews or conversations that we've had in, in a while. Well, the goal of these conversations, I would say is they're like stepping stones, right? If you never heard of Sandra Richter and her work, this is a stepping stone. You can kind of step into her world and understand, oh, okay, this is really interesting. And, and like our goal with this podcast is kind of introduce you to people who have thought through these subjects. You know, it's sometimes on your own, you kind of, I think people feel this way sometimes they read, you know, let's take the Old Testament, right? And they read it and they're like, ah, oh, you know, there's so much in here that's confusing. And they kind of feel like, man, I'm probably the only person that's wrestled with this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, okay, no, someone's spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours doing the same thing, but actually has a good, clear structure in, in mind. So I encourage you to check out her work, The Epic Obedient, a great place uh, to start. And also does a lot of YouTube videos as well uh, that are very helpful. One we'll include in the show notes below. But um, have a great week, everyone. We'll talk to you all again soon. Thank you for listening to the Monday Christian Podcast. To support our vision and find new ways to put your faith into action throughout the week, visit themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com.